All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's 9.15, so we should get started. And we are continuing our seminar through the book of Daniel. Many of you were here for Dr. Hosel's three presentations over the first six chapters, and then yesterday afternoon we looked at Daniel chapter 7 and 8, and we looked at the prophetic identity and mission of we as God's people, the Second Advent Movement. And this morning we are going to look at Daniel chapter 11 in the first presentation up through the first 40 verses and then the second presentation when Michael stands up, that's the title, we are going to look at the last five verses of Daniel 11 into the first part of Daniel chapter 12 when Michael stands up. So that's where we're headed this morning. So let's have a word of prayer and we will get started with our, our talk. Father in heaven, we thank you again so much for bringing us here to GYC, for giving us the privilege of studying your word, and I pray that as we study Daniel chapter 11 this morning that we would see Christ at the heart of this prophecy and that it would remind us of how soon Jesus really could be coming. Amen. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So just out of curiosity, um, I'm interested to know how many of you have studied Daniel chapter 11? Wow, oh, that's great. So I'm going to be talking to a number of people who have studied this book or this chapter, so that's great. How many of you have never cracked Daniel 11? Several of you. And you know what? I would have raised my hand about five years ago. All I knew was that Daniel 11 was this chapter at the end of Daniel that was thick with information, full of history, and I tended to stick to Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 9 and jumped ahead to chapter 12. But what we want to look at today, we want to see what is Daniel 11 talking about and how important is it? And the question is, is Daniel 11 important for our study at this time of earth's history? You know, we, we've studied Daniel 2, we've studied Daniel 7 and 8 and a little bit of chapter 9, but a lot of people, like myself, even up to a few years ago, tend to pass by Daniel 10 and 11, and then we jump ahead to chapter 12 with Michael standing up, and then the final close of the book of Daniel. But we miss a lot of what God is trying to tell us in the final vision that Daniel was given at the end of the book of Daniel. And when you look at Daniel chapter 11, in order to properly understand its context, the context for Daniel chapter 11 begins in Daniel chapter 10. Because it is in Daniel chapter 10 that Daniel receives the vision. So I invite you to, to get out your Bibles and we're going to look beginning in Daniel chapter 10 and this is going to paint a picture for us of just how important Daniel chapter 11 is for our time in earth's history. 
Now, starting in verse 1, Daniel says that this is in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we have now moved past the time when Darius the Mede was king. Now Cyrus, the Persian, is king. And in the third year of Cyrus, and this is at the very end of Daniel's life, he is, is, is very old now. When he was in his 80s, as Dr. Hosel pointed out, when Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall, and then Darius the Mede was king of the Medes for a period of time, and now we're in the third year of Cyrus of Persia. So Daniel is getting very near towards the end of his life, and in the last half of verse 1, it's, or here in verse 1 it says, a thing was revealed unto Daniel. So it's interesting, Daniel refers to this vision of Daniel chapter 11 as a thing. It's a thing that was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And he says, the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. So right here at the very beginning, this is Daniel introducing what he's going to describe all the way through chapter 11 and chapter 12. And what he tells us is, what I saw is true, but it's for a long time. So the very first thing that we know about Daniel chapter 11 is that this is going to be for a long time. And this is an interesting contrast to what we've seen in earlier visions. For example, you come to the end of Daniel chapter 8, and he says that none understood the vision. But at the beginning of what he describes for Daniel 10, 11, and 12, he says, I understood this, and and it's going to be for a long time. So do you see that? Daniel, at the end of chapter 8, when he gets the vision of the 2300 days, he doesn't really understand what it's about. But here he's telling us at the very outset, before he describes the the vision in its entirety, that he understood this. Then in verses 2 and 3, he sets the stage for how this vision was revealed to him. So in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, we see, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, if you've studied the book of Daniel, is there another passage in the book of Daniel that this reminds you of? This would remind you of the prayer of Daniel in chapter 9 where he's studying the prophecy of the, of the 70 years of captivity from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25 and chapter 29, where he's trying to figure out, well, God, you said we would be in captivity for 70 years, and he's, it's after he doesn't understand this prophecy of the 2300 days. And then Gabriel comes to him immediately and tells him, don't worry, 70 weeks of probationary time are granted to your people. And that came to Daniel immediately. He was studying the prophecies. God gives him the answer. Here, in Daniel chapter 10, he's saying that he was mourning for three full weeks. And this obviously lasts for much longer than Daniel chapter 9. And what is Daniel doing during these three full weeks? Why is he mourning? Well, if you look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, Gabriel says, 
to Daniel, he says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to chasten yourself before God, your words were heard, and I am come for your words. So Daniel was trying to understand something. Now, we don't have a clear picture of what exactly Daniel was trying to understand. But what we do know is that he continued to fast and mourn and pray for three full weeks until the angel Gabriel came to help him understand what he wanted to know. Now, I cannot prove this with certainty, but my belief is that when you look at Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel comes and gives Daniel information that helps him to understand the beginning of the 2300-day prophecy. Because Daniel didn't understand that, right? He comes to the end of Daniel chapter 8, and he says, I did not understand the vision. I was astonished by it. Then in Daniel chapter 9, he's studying the prophecy from Jeremiah 25 and 29 about the 70 years of captivity that had been prophesied, and he's calculating, we're at the very end of this. When are we going to go back? And then the angel Gabriel comes and gives him information about the beginning of the 2300 days with the 70 weeks. But he doesn't tell Daniel anything about what's going to happen at the end of the 2,300 years in Daniel chapter 9. But when you look at the prophecy of Daniel 10, 11, and 12, what Daniel says that he understands at the very outset, after he's seen everything, he understands that this is for a long time. So he, inevitably he must understand, okay, the 2,300 years, or the 2,300 days are four years that will encapsulate a long period of time because he sees all of the information from verse 1 of Daniel 11 all the way down to the end of verse 45 and into Daniel chapter 12. So I believe that Daniel wants to know more about what is going to happen at the end of the 2300 days now that he already knows what's going to happen at the beginning of the 70 weeks. Now again, I'm not dogmatic about that, but I think that's um, certainly a plausible explanation for that. Now notice what happens at the, after Daniel says he fasted and prayed for three full weeks. And this helps us to gain an, a picture of just how important this vision is. In verse 4, it says, In the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold. Verse 6, his body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, who do you think Daniel sees here? This is Jesus Christ. Now, has Jesus Christ revealed himself to Daniel in vision up to this point in the book of Daniel? Now, if you look in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. Now, Jesus, the Son of Man, does appear with the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace. So we have seen Jesus in the book of Daniel already. But as far as 
a heavenly being coming to give a vision. This is the first time that Jesus himself shows up to give a vision to Daniel, and this is the last vision of Daniel. So for me, when I study the book of Daniel and I see that Jesus shows up at the beginning of the prophecy of Daniel 11, I have to figure that this is a prophecy of utmost importance. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So Jesus shows up to Daniel, and then you read verses 7 through 9, Daniel sees in vision what is described in words, beginning in Daniel 11, verse 1, down into Daniel chapter 12. So Daniel first sees everything, and then the angel comes and describes it for him so that he can write it down. Does that make sense? Okay, so Daniel, verses 7 through 9, he sees this vision, and the reaction of what he sees, verse 8, it says, he retained no strength. So what Daniel sees causes him to lose strength. And then in verses 9 through 14, the angel Gabriel speaks to him. And I don't have the quote with me, but Ellen White makes it clear that this is indeed Gabriel coming to speak to Daniel again, just as he did in chapter 9 and in chapter 8. When, so let's pick it up in verse 11. Gabriel says, And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And he continues on. Notice verse 13. We already read verse 12 where Gabriel says, From the very first that you set your heart to understand, I came for your words. And here's a practical application for us. Do you realize that if we're not studying our Bibles, if we're not studying the prophecies, God isn't going to help us understand them? That's right. But you realize that Gabriel came to Daniel in chapter 9 because Daniel was studying the prophecy of the 70 years in Jeremiah? And here in Daniel chapter 10, God comes to, to Daniel directly and then Gabriel comes to him because Daniel was setting his heart to understand again. I mean, Daniel was not satisfied with like, okay, I was able to explain to Nebuchadnezzar the image in Daniel 2. Okay, I've seen the vision of the lion, the bear, the, the leopard, and the dreadful beast of Daniel 7. Okay, I've seen the ram, the he-goat, and the little horn in Daniel 8. I'm good. I've got our message figured out. I'm just going to go kind of take a nap now until Jesus comes. <laughs> You know, we as God's people, as Seventh-day Adventists, we should be continually studying and seeking to learn more about our message. Amen. Because our message has not yet reached the peak of the loud cry being given. Amen. And so there's more to unpack from Daniel and Revelation and the other truths of Scripture for our time. And so Daniel, all the way to the very end of his life, was setting his heart to understand, and God reveals himself. And notice, verse 13 is absolutely fascinating. Verse 13 says, Gabriel says to Daniel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. Now, how long was Daniel in mourning, fasting, and praying? Three weeks, which is 21 days. So while Daniel is mourning, fasting, and praying for 21 days, Gabriel is being withstood by the prince of the king of Persia, which is another way to describe the king of Persia, who is Cyrus. Now again, we don't necessarily have all of the information about what happened 
with Cyrus at this time. But some historians believe that it was around this time that an evil report about the Jews who had gone back to Jerusalem came back to Cyrus. Cyrus was the first of the three kings to make the decrees to rebuild Jerusalem. And that culminated with the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 to begin the 2300-day prophecy. But here's the thing. Each of those decrees built on each other, and any, if any one of them had been undermined, then the beginning point for the 70 weeks and the 2300 days would have been jeopardized. And you don't think the devil knew that? So Cyrus, who was the one who made the initial decree to help Jerusalem be rebuilt, is perhaps now having doubts about this decree. And so Gabriel is coming to help Daniel understand what's going to happen to God's people. And specifically, verse 14 tells us that Gabriel tells Daniel, I'm going to let you know what will befall your people in the latter days. And this vision of Daniel 11 takes us down point by point through history down to the very end of time. But Gabriel could not give this information to Daniel while he was being withstood by Cyrus, the king of Persia. And if you look at this from a great controversy perspective, you can see the curtains drawn back and you can see two beings, two supernatural beings working on the mind of Cyrus. On one side, you have Gabriel trying to get Cyrus to continue to protect God's people. And on the other side, you have Satan trying to get Cyrus to change his mind. And after three full weeks, which during the entire time Daniel is fasting and praying, the best that Gabriel can do is, is bring Satan to a draw in the mind of Cyrus. Now, what would have happened if after a week, Daniel said, you know what, yeah, I've been fasting and praying for a week, and, you know, Daniel chapter 9, it only took a few minutes for God to show up, and, you know, this has been a week now, I'm, I'm tired of this, you know, where's God, I don't hear you anymore, I, I, I'm not going to study, I'm done. And what Daniel didn't even realize that while he was fasting, praying, interceding to understand more about the prophecies for the last days, there's this great controversy struggle between Gabriel and Satan over the mind of Cyrus. And if we could really understand the great controversy between Christ and Satan and what the struggle that takes place between the forces of good and evil uh, among God's people, the the conflict over the salvation of each of our souls, we would probably view life very differently. And Daniel all this time is fasting and praying, and notice what happens. At the last half of verse 13 it says, But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make you understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. What happened when Michael showed up? The victory was gained. Now I think as Seventh-day Adventists we understand Michael is Christ. I'm not going to do the Bible study to prove that. But let me point this out from Scripture. Do you know 
what the significances of Christ being described as Michael throughout Scripture. You know, there are several places that Michael shows up in Scripture. There's actually four places. Here in Daniel 10, 13. The next place is Daniel 12, verse 1, which will be the subject of our next presentation, where it says Michael stands up. Then in Jude, verse 9, Michael and Satan are contending over the body of Moses. And in Revelation chapter 12, Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels. And guess who wins every time? Michael. Michael, Michael shows up in Scripture any time there is a great controversy conflict between Christ and Satan, and it denotes victory on behalf of God. Because Michael is the mighty warrior. And here, this struggle had gone on for 21 days. And God looks down from heaven and he says, You know what? Daniel, he's proven himself again. He's been faithfully mourning, fasting, and praying for three weeks. And so I am going to come now and settle this issue myself. And so Michael comes down. He sets the issue in, in Cyrus's mind. And then once that is settled... Christ, or Michael, reveals himself directly to Daniel in vision, as we saw in verses, beginning in verse 5 and 6 of Daniel chapter 10. So Daniel chapter 10 paints this picture that the vision of Daniel chapter 11 began with a great controversy struggle between Christ and Satan over revealing the information that would befall God's people in the latter days. So how important then is the information that we are going to see in Daniel chapter 11? It's obviously going to be very important, and it's going to take us down to the very end of time. And, and just for clarity's sake, when it talks about the latter days of the vision, the latter days refer to that which follows from the present time in Daniel chapter 10. But ultimately, the latter days finish at the end of the vision, which culminates in Daniel chapter 12. So, let's continue on then. Now that we've set the stage for how important this is. Let's see what happens. First of all, Daniel says that he doesn't even want to hear what he saw described to him. And Gabriel then says, no, I'm going to strengthen you to hear this. So obviously it was a troubling thing that Daniel saw. And Gabriel strengthens him to see what takes place. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. Before I get into that, let me just give you a brief overview, and I'm not going to go through all the points. All I want to do at the outset, as we begin to go through the sequence of kings in Daniel 11, is to let you know that Daniel 11 simply follows the same sequence of kingdoms as Daniel 2, 7, and 8. So don't get so bogged down in the details that you forget the big picture. The big picture is that the same sequence of kingdoms continue. Um, however, just as Daniel 8, Babylon is missing, it's also missing again in Daniel 11. Then we start with Darius the Mede, and then eventually we get into the king of the north and the king of the south. We're going to talk about that. But the king of the north is the preeminent power, first as the Antiochus and Seleucid division of Greece, then as pagan Rome, then papal Rome, and then we come to the end of time. So that's a brief overview of Daniel 11. 
Now let's get into some of the highlights of the first 30 verses. When you come to Daniel chapter 11, verse 1, Gabriel says, Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. And you know, if you're studying Daniel 11 and you skip chapter 10, you might wonder, man, what's Gabriel talking about? That's a strange way to start Daniel 11. What he's saying is, okay, we are in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. But when Darius the Mede was king, I, I confirmed and strengthened him in that role as well. So Darius the Mede, the first year of his kingdom was 539 BC. And as you recall, the, the sequence of kingdoms, Babylon was 605 to 539. Medo-Persia is 539 to 331 BC. Greece is 331 to 168. Pagan Rome is 168 to 476. And Papal Rome is 538 to 1798. Now, we continue on through these verses. In verse 2, and I'm not going to go through all this, I'm just setting the stage. Verse 2, it says, Now I will show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. The fourth who was far richer was Xerxes. And then, in verse 3, it talks about a mighty king shall stand up. That is Alexander the Great. But then verse 4 shows how Alexander's kingdom was divided into four parts, which you see on the slide, and it's better seen here. These are the four divisions of Greece. This parallels the four heads of the leopard and the four horns that we saw in Daniel 8. And when you see the four divisions, there was Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. These were the four divisions of Greece. However... When you understand what happened down through time, eventually Seleucus, which you see had a very large territory, the Seleucid Empire conquered the territory of Lysimachus and Cassander. And so what ends up happening is you now have the king of the north, which is the Seleucid Empire, and you have the king of the south, which is the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt. So how many of you have heard of the king of the north and the king of the south? Okay, so the king of the north and the king of the south come from the division of the Greek empire, which was initially divided into four parts, but then Seleucus conquered two of the other territories, and now you only have two divisions left. So those are the king of the north and the king of the south. And incidentally, if you see that star on the map, that is where God's people resided in Judea, and they were caught right in the middle between the king of the north and the king of the south. And so the king of the north and the king of the south are relative to where God's people reside. Okay, so now let's continue on. When we continue on in Daniel 11, what you see in verses 5 through 15 is that there's many battles between the king of the north and the king of the south in verses 5 through 15. Now, again, for those of you who have this handout, all of the information is in here. Um, point by point. But I wanted to just show one story that to me is very fascinating. This was prophesied before it ever happened. It's Daniel 11, verse 6, and it says, In the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come 
to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengtheneth her in these times. So here's the story. King of the north, king of the south are fighting each other for many years, and in 249 B.C., King of the North, King of the South say, okay, enough's enough. Let's make an alliance with each other. So the King of the South sends his daughter, Berenice, to marry Antiochus II, who is the King of the North. The only problem is Antiochus was already married and already had a son. So he puts away his wife to marry Berenice, the daughter of the King of the South, to form this political alliance between the King of the North and the King of the South. And everyone must have thought in 249 BC they'll live happily ever after and there's not going to be any more battles between the King of the North and the King of the South. Wrong. God knew better. So what happens? Two years later, Berenice's father dies, and Antiochus says, you know what? I think I'll take my first wife back. And he had already had a child now with Berenice as well. So he puts away Berenice, the daughter of the king of the south, whose brother now becomes king of the south, and he brings back his first wife, and his first child, his first wife's name was Laodice, incidentally, whom the, whom the city Laodicea is named after. And Laodice, she doesn't really trust her husband anymore. Does that make sense? <laughs> and she says, you know what? I don't trust this guy. So guess what she does? She has him put to death. So now her son becomes the king of the north, and she also murders Berenice, who was her rival, and Berenice's child, as well as the e Egyptian princesses that came up with her from the king of the south, which perfectly fulfilled this event that was prophesied before it ever happened. So what I, the reason I tell this story is that Daniel 11 gives us almost microscopic prophetic detail that you don't see in Daniel 2, 7, and 8. And that, to me, is very fascinating, which tells me if it's that accurate in Daniel 11, verse 6, how accurate is, is it going to be when we get to the end of Daniel 11? It's obviously going to be very accurate. So let's continue on. So there's these many battles, and now we're going to maybe hear some names that we've heard of before. We, we come down to verse 16. Pompey of Rome defeats Antiochus the king of the north of Greece. This is 65 BC, and it is true that the Western Roman Empire defeated Greece in 168, but the, the Syrian division of Greece, Antiochus's territory, continued to stand until 65 BC when Pompey defeats him in Daniel 11, verse 16. And in that, two years later, Pompey enters into the glorious land, which is Judea, in 63 BC. Up until this time, there had been a league with the Jews, but in 63 BC, that alliance between the Jews and the Romans is done away with, and now the Jews come under the dominion of Rome. Continuing on, verses 18 and 19, we start to see some familiar figures from history. How many of you have heard of Julius Caesar? <laughs> Hopefully all of you. Julius Caesar is described in verses 18 and 19, and verse 19 describes his death. Verse 19, it says, Then he shall face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And many of you know the story. Julius Caesar was taking over the world. He comes home to Rome. He's in the Roman Senate. And then the senators mob him and, and put him to death. It was totally unforeseen. 
And then in verse 20, it says, Then shall, shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. Who do you think this is talking about? This is Caesar Augustus, which when you look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about how Caesar Augustus made a decree that all the world should be taxed right around the time that Jesus was to be born. And so when it talks about in the glory of the kingdom, this was the, the pinnacle of the pagan Roman Empire's kingdom, and it's also during the time that Jesus was born. So this is the glory of the kingdom. The end of verse 20 describes how Caesar Augustus dies peacefully. Then as we continue on, we see Tiberius Caesar and his death described in verses 21 and 22, as well as the prince of the covenant, who is Christ. So what I'm simply trying to show you in the highlights of these verses is that there are familiar historical figures that we've all studied about in our history courses. It's just that as Seventh-day Adventists, we oftentimes don't study these prophecies, and so we don't know what it's talking about. Continuing on, verse 23, it jumps back in time to the Roman leg with the Jews in 161 BC, and then verses 25 through 28 describe the final struggle of the king of the north and the king of the south with Egypt, literal Egypt, as the king of the south. Now, how many of you have heard of Cleopatra and Mark Antony? Uh, of course. Okay, most of you have. So, you know, the story here is Mark Antony was one of three men, Lepidus, Mark Antony, and Caesar Augustus, that formed a triumvirate to avenge the death of Julius Caesar. And Caesar Augustus's sister, Octavia, marries Mark Antony to show that, yes, we are in alignment with each other. We are brothers in the cause for Rome. We are together. Well, Mark Antony goes down to Egypt on the king's business, and he meets Queen Cleopatra, and guess what happened? He divorces the sister of Augustus, marries Cleopatra, and declares himself against Rome, and now he becomes the king of the south. And now Caesar Augustus and Antony are mortal enemies, and verses 25 through 28 describe this final battle which occurred in 31 BC, and as the battle picked up, Cleopatra got scared and turned her ship around and fled, and Mark Antony was so infatuated with her, he turned around and went after her, and so Mark Antony's soldiers got disgusted with him and declared for Caesar. Once Mark Antony saw that, he murdered himself, and that's all in Daniel 11. So we come to the end of the first 30 verses. We don't see the king of the south again until Daniel 11, verse 40. And that paints a historical picture. And you, you come to the end of verse 30, and it describes the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD. And I don't have to, time to get into all of that. But now we see where we are in history through verse 30. And before I move on to verse 31, I want to show you what Ellen White says about Daniel chapter 11. She just has a few quotes. The first one is found in Testimonies of the Ministers, page 112 and 113. She says, The light that Daniel received from God was given especially for the last days. The visions he saw by the banks of the Uli and Hittichel, which is Daniel 10.4, the great rivers of Shinar are now in process of fulfillment, and all the events foretold will how soon come to pass? Very soon. Will soon come to pass. And this is the vision. The vision of the Uli is Daniel 8. 
the vision of the Hittichel is Daniel 10 through 12, and she's saying that these events foretold will soon come to pass. So that's the first statement. Then, Testimonies, Volume 9, page 14, she says, the world is stirred with a spirit of war. The prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. So she's saying the prophecies in Daniel have nearly reached their complete fulfillment. So we're going to continue on down through time to see just how near they are to being fulfilled. Now this is the interesting quote which gives us more information. This is found in Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, page 394. Notice what Ellen White says. It's similar to the testimonies, but more information. We have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with a spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of in the prophecies will take place. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. And then she says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. And the question is, which history is she referring to? Well, she explains herself as the quote continues. She says, in the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved in return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Now, now what power do you think is she referring to that's introduced here? This is referring to the papacy. And then she quotes verses 31 to 36, which I'm going to read as part of this quote. Verse 31 of Daniel 11 says, An arm shall stand on his part. This is the king of the north. And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword, and by flame, and by captivity, and by spoil many days, which I believe are the 1260 days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be holpen with a little help. That's the Protestant Reformation, I believe. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. So Ellen White says much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Then she quotes Daniel 11, 31 to 36, and continuing on in the same quote, she says, scenes similar to those described in these words, verses 31 to 36 of Daniel 11, will take place. And I'm not going to read the rest of the quote. So here's the point. Daniel chapter 11, verses 30 through 30, 36, introduce papal Rome as the new king of the north. Then she quotes the history of the 1200 and actually 90 years of, of papal supremacy that began in 508. And she shows what happens when papal Rome was in power. You see the persecution of the saints. And then she says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So let's continue on now and see what comes next. What are the key elements 
of Daniel 11 that are going to be repeated. Well, verse 30 talks about how papal Rome has intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. This is papal Rome forming a political alliance with the kings of the earth. Verse 31 talks about how arms shall stand on his part. Now, this shouldn't really be that big of a deal if you're talking about the king of the north, because if you study the history, the king of the north always fought with their army. So why is Daniel 11 saying arms stand on the part of the king of the north? Well, papal Rome didn't have an army. But they got the assistance of the military power from a king in the region of France known as Clovis, the king of the Franks, who in 508 entered into agreement with papal Rome and gave the support of his military army to the papacy. And so arms are standing on the part of or on behalf of papal Rome to support the policies of the church. This occurred in 508, and then in 533 and 538, Justinian also contributed to that. Then it talks about how the daily would be taken away, and in 508, this was the pagan elements of, of Western Europe and Rome that were removed by the papacy that was in 508. And then it says, they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Now, if you understand the abomination of desolation, obviously the, uh, an abomination is, from history we saw it was first fulfilled, the abomination of desolation, in the destruction of Jerusalem when the Romans placed their idolatrous standards in the holy ground that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And in Daniel chapter 9, it talks about the overspreading of abominations, which refers to the abomination of desolation in plural. So the first one is 70 AD. The second one is 508, when the Roman church, which is supposed to be a holy church, God's professed holy people, joins itself in a political alliance with the kings of the earth, making a union of church and state. And this led to persecution. So when church and state combine, you have the abomination of church and state combining, followed by desolation, which is the persecution of the saints. And that is described in verses 33 and 35 of Daniel chapter 11. And the 1260 years are described in verse 33. And notice, in verse 36, which Ellen White quotes, it says that the king of the north would prosper till the indignation is accomplished. Now, if you look at this word indignation, the Bible commentary for me had a very helpful description that this word indignation describes the, in, the sin of papal Rome in persecuting God's saints. That's the indignation. Indignation describes sin specifically the indignation of the persecution of the saints, which continued until the time of the end, 1798. So papal Rome prospers till the indignation is accomplished. And again, Ellen White says, much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated and scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. So the question is, how does history repeat itself in Daniel 11? Well, military force will once again in the future stand up on behalf of the king of the north or papal Rome because the Vatican doesn't have 
really an army to speak of except for a few guards at the Vatican. I don't think they're going to do much damage. <clears throat> a church-state union will again be formed, known as the abomination of desolation. You will again see the persecution of the saints. And then the king of the north comes to its final end. Just as papal Rome received a deadly wound in 1798, you will see the king of the north coming to its final end again at the end of Daniel chapter 11. Now, let's get to the time of the end in Daniel chapter 11 because the focus for our presentation this morning is where are we today? Well, when you come to Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, it says, And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. Now, yesterday I took the time to show that the time of the end began in 1798. I'm not going to take the time to prove that again. So Daniel 11, verse 40 shows that in 1798, the king of the south pushes at the king of the north. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for push can also mean to gore. Does that create some Im imagery in your mind? That creates in your mind the imagery of the deadly wound. King of the south gores at the king of the north, pushes at him. The king of the north receives a deadly wound. And the question is, how did the king of the north receive a deadly wound in 1798? It was in 1798 that Napoleon, who is pictured here, sent his general Berthier into Rome and took Pius VI captive, and that was the end of the 1,260 years in which the papacy had supremacy over the state. Now the state has reassumed its power over the church and there's an appropriate separation between church and state so that the civil power has preeminence in the affairs of the state once again which during the 1260 years the church had preeminence over the affairs of the civil power so that was the deadly wound papal rome no longer had its power over the state it didn't cease to exist. The Vatican was still there. They still had more popes, but they didn't have the power over the state that they once had. And so the question is, who is the king of the south in verse 40? Because that's going to help us to understand where we are prophetically at this time. Well, what happened at the end of the 1260-year prophecy? We saw yesterday the French Revolution took place, which was based on the principle of atheism. And at the end of the French Revolution, just one year later, atheistic France is the power or the king who delivers the deadly wound to papal Rome. Now, let me ask you this. Who was the king of the south all the way through the first 30 verses? Egypt. It was Egypt, or the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt. So can we show that France represents spiritual Egypt at the end of time? Yes. And the answer is yes, we can. Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, describes the French Revolution spiritually as Sodom and Egypt. So here we have a perfect correlation. France delivers the deadly wound. They are the spiritual king of the south. Now, did France, I mean, did France retain that power? Well, 
Not really, but and we'll talk about that. But Ellen White even says, Great Controversy, page 269, that the atheism of Egypt was when, Je when Pharaoh said, Who is Jehovah that I should obey him? But after France, the king of the south eventually continued on as the communist Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. And this is interesting to me. Here you see a picture of the Communist Manifesto, as well as Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, and, and so forth. Now, have any of you not heard of Lenin and Stalin? So we're talking about more modern historical figures here, right? Where did they come from? Well, you know where they got their ideas? They got them from the Communist Manifesto, written by Karl Marx. And when did Karl Marx write the Communist Manifesto? It's very interesting, and I got this from, from Ron Dupre. He does a whole seminar on 1844. <clears throat> Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1844 while he was living in Paris, France. It was then published four years later in 1848. And interestingly, Vladimir Lenin then reads the Communist Manifesto and that gave rise to the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the rise of communist Soviet Union and Eastern Communist Europe which allowed the King of the South to continue to push at Papal Rome because Papal Rome here in its own backyard has a force to contend with the communist Soviet Union that has now taken over Eastern Europe and so Papal Rome doesn't even have control over all of Europe anymore let alone the world and the the communist Soviet power really peaked in this symbol of the Cold War with the erection of the Berlin Wall in 1961, which divided East Berlin from Western Berlin, East Germany from West Germany, and was a symbol of the divide between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, or the divide between communism and democracy. And by this point, you could clearly see Papal Rome had been wounded with loss of its power over the state in Europe. However, the story doesn't end there, does it? What does the last half of verse 40 say in Daniel chapter 11? It says, the king of the north, which is Papal Rome, this is going to be sometime after 1798, the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. So how, how does the king of the north make a comeback against the king of the south? It's with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. Now when you think of chariots and horsemen in scripture, what do you think of? This is sort of a crude picture of maybe B.C. times. I don't know. But what does the Bible say? 2 Kings 6.15. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth. This is Elisha. Behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? So here you have the Syrian army surrounding Samaria with horses and chariots. 
I believe that chariots and horsemen, again, represent military power, and this represents history repeating. Remember how arms stood on the part of the king of the north in Daniel 11.31? Here you have chariots and horsemen, which again represent military power, standing on behalf of papal Rome, who has no military power of its own. Not only that, it talks about ships, many ships. What does the Bible say about ships? 2 Chronicles 9.21 and Proverbs 31.14 refer to ships as riches and merchandise. And in Revelation 18.11-19, those who were made rich by Babylon, which is papal Rome, had ships in the sea. So I believe that ships represent economic power. So through military and economic power, Papal Rome would make a comeback against the king of the south, initially represented by atheistic France, but then was continued by the communist Soviet Union. And so the question is, where are we today? Have we seen a modern nation use its military might and economic force to assist papal Rome in bringing down the king of the south? And I believe the answer is yes. <clears throat> in 1992, Carl Bernstein, who was co-author with Bob Woodward of Watergate, wrote a 12-page article in Time magazine called The Holy Alliance. And if you read the title of the slide, it says, How Reagan and the Pope Conspire to Assist Poland's Solidarity Movement and Hasten the Demise of Communism. So here you have one of the leading magazines of the world saying right on its front page what prophecy predicted would happen someday. And the article was written February 24, 1992. And it describes how the first meeting between President Reagan and Pope John Paul II occurred on June 7, 1982. By 1984, the United States had sent its first ambassador ever to the Vatican. Many of Reagan's administration was Catholic. And whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that trend has continued um, through all of the administration since that time. And... <clears throat> Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, Richard Allen, called this one of the great secret alliances of all time. And I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit old. Let me ask the question, how many of you were alive when Reagan was president? Okay, how many of you were not alive when Reagan was president? Wow, what happened? <laughs> that, I, that was just yesterday, it seems. <clears throat> You know, Ronald Reagan was quite a politician, as was Pope John Paul II. They come together, they form this alliance, and they, you can read the article and it talks about how Reagan offers the support of the military might of the United States, which, which was the, the one of the two superpowers of the world, along with the Soviet Union. And Reagan and the Pope both agreed it would be best for the United States and the papacy if we could bring down the Soviet Union. And so Reagan, through the force of military might and the economy of the United States, conspires with the Pope to bring down the papacy. And this moment, the tension of this moment, culminates 
in front of the Brandenburg Gate in 1987, as you can see here. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I don't know if you could hear that, but that was the moment when Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that occurred on June 12, 1987. This was a significant moment. And just two years later, November 9, 1989, I still remember this as clear as day, the Berlin Wall came down. And as Seventh-day Adventists, Many of us were not even aware that a significant moment was taking place in prophetic history because the King of the North, through the assistance of the United States of America and its military and economic power, led to the demise of the communism of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And by 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. By the end of 1989, Romania and Czechoslovakia came down. And by 1991, even the Soviet Union had no longer the power that it once had. And so when we look at Daniel 11, verse 40, at the very end, it says, He shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. I believe this represents papal Rome entering into the countries of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, overflowing and passing over through the assistance of the United States of America, which leads us to quite a conclusion about where we are in Earth's history today. Because many of us were alive in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down and this prophecy was being fulfilled in the last part of verse 40 of Daniel 11. I believe that we are minutes till midnight. I believe that Jesus is coming very soon. And when you look at what happens next in Daniel 11. We are going to talk about that in the next seminar. You will see that we are on the cusp of eternity. Where are we today? I mean, that picture says it all. Democratic and Republican presidents kneeling in front of the Pope. The United States of America and Papal Rome. You know, when I read Great Controversy for the first time when I was in the fifth grade, stuff like that, you could almost never imagine. And now, the things she talked about are in that book are beginning to take place. And I want to take us back to a couple of Ellen White quotes as we wrap up this hour. Notice Testimonies, Volume 9, page 11. Ellen White says, The agencies of evil are combining their forces and consolidating. They are strengthening for the last great crisis. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. And then in that very same chapter, the quote that I read, she says, the prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment, which leads me to the conclusion that the final movements in Daniel chapter 11 are going to be rapid ones, and you are going to see that in our next presentation. Once we get to verse 41, it's going to go 
like rapid fire, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45. And then in Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael will stand up. And I contend with each one of you today that we as Seventh-day Adventists need to wake up to the hour of history we are living in. Many of us just slept right through the wall, fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism and didn't even know that prophecy was being fulfilled before our very eyes. And here we are, Daniel 11 verse 1 begins all the way back in 539 B.C. And we can come now down to Daniel 11 verse 40 and we can look and say, you know what? That was fulfilled in the end of the 1980s and early 1990s. And so I close with this quote. Christians should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. And this preparation they should make diligently, studying the Word of God and striving to conform their lives to its precepts. Are you preparing for what is to come upon the world as an overwhelming surprise? Or are you spending your evenings watching TV for three hours? <laughs> spending two or three hours a day on Facebook? Barely cracking open your Bibles, having five minutes of worship time with God in the day, and then spending four or five hours filling your mind with the cares of this life. We need to wake up, brothers and sisters. Jesus is coming soon. We have a message to give to this world. And as we get into our last presentation in the next 15 minutes, we are going to see what happens when the King of the North enters into the glorious land, when the tidings out of the East and the North go out, and when Michael stands up. You won't want to miss it because that is our roadmap for what will happen between now and when Jesus comes. So we will see you again in 15 minutes.